Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Ministries International. We value the Word of God as an instrument of growth in our lives, using it to mend our ways, align our thinking, and ultimately bring restoration. We trust that you will be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. I want to talk to you about the subject of worship tonight. Um, you know, there's various understandings when we say worship, and very often the idea that we have is of a service where we come together and we sing songs to God. And yes, that's a form of expressing, expressing worship. But I want to get down to the essence of worship. What is worship? How would we define it? Uh, and how would that work, out, work its way out in our lives? What is our thinking? Where do we start from when we look at this thing called worship? Some dictionary definitions of the word worship would read as follows. Worship is reverent love or devotion accorded to a deity. It's also, you know, worship could be ceremonies or prayers or other religious forms by which, which love is expressed. So like I said, for example, when we come together for our worship services and we spend time in praise and worship, that can be defined as worship. But when we begin to look at the Bible... And we begin to study the subject of worship. We begin to find out that worship is a lot more than just a meeting or a song sung. It goes a lot deeper than that. Uh, the scriptural definition of worship would be more like worship is a natural expression of the life of a disciple involving every facet of his life. So the first thing I want, to, I want you to take note of in your, in, your di in, your, in your notes today is that worship is a natural expression. Worship has to do with heart motivations. So it begins not with an outward act, but with an inward attitude of the heart. It's far more than intent. It's not just that I, I want God to know that, that, that I love Him, but it's deliberate. Worship is a deliberate act. So on, in the one hand, it's a natural thing. It comes forth very naturally. But on the other hand, it's deliberate. Well, how can that be? How can I be deliberate about something that is also quite natural? The, the natural comes from the heart attitude. Once we begin to encounter the love of God and the goodness of God, the most natural response for us to have is an attitude of worship. The deliberateness comes in where I choose to deny how I may be feeling or what I'm going through and to offer up to God the praise and the thanksgiving that, is, that He is worthy of, that He is deserving of. True worship, worship means that there is a longing within my heart that my every motive and undertaking be done with the sole purpose of glorifying God. That's what it's all about. Folks, you and I were created to worship. What does that mean? Does that mean that we were created to sing songs all day long? Some of us, that might not be such a bad idea or such a daunting thought. For others of us, that might be pretty scary. In fact, I know some people who I would not like to be singing all day, every day. That, that would get a little bit much. The point is this. God created us for worship. So let's understand what He means or what, what, what is meant when we say that. It's interesting to note that when God created the earth and He set Adam and Eve in the earth and He created a special place to them, God never commanded them to worship. God never said, you will worship me. Between creation... And the fall, worship isn't even mentioned. 
So what does that mean? How do we draw uh, understanding from that, considering that that was the original example? That was about as perfect as things you know have ever been on earth. Before the fall, Adam and Eve's lives and intimacy with God was their expression of worship. Why did God call out? If you think about it, Adam, Adam and Eve, they, they lived in the garden. Their very nature, expression of intimacy with God was their act of worship. That's why when they fell, when they, when they committed the sin, God walks into the garden and He goes, Adam, where are you? Did, did God really not know where Adam was? Was Adam really that good at hide and seek? Did God go, alright, I give up guys, where are you? I don't think it was like that at all. The fact is this, Adam was created for intimacy with God, Adam and Eve. And, they were, and in that intimacy, in doing what they were created to do, in being who they were created to be, their very, their very life, their very existence, the very expression of who they were, was the act of worship. It worshipped God. It ministered to Him. Any of you who are creative, whether it's with needlework or woodwork or building or Lego or whatever it may be, when you've created something for a purpose and you use that thing for its intended purpose, it ministers back to you. Am I right? You get a sense of fulfillment. You get a sense of joy that comes back to you from that. It's as though that object ministers life and encouragement back to you. Well, God created you and I. And when we live and do what we were created to do, that in and of itself is the highest act of worship. Many, many years ago, a group of guys got together in the year of 1646. They, the Westminster Confession of Faith was drawn up. Let me just read something to you. Um, drawn up by the 1646 Westminster Assembly as part of the Westminster Standards to be a confession of the Church of England, it became and remains a subordinate standard of doctrine for the Church of England, Scotland, and has been integral in Presbyterian churches worldwide. There's a, in other words, they, they, they put together a document that asked a number of questions. Those number of questions are important questions because in the answers to those questions we learn a lot. The very first question that they asked in the Westminster Confession of Faith was this. What is the chief end of man? How many of us have asked that question? How many around us ask that question? In other words, why are we here? What's this all about? The conclusion that they came to is this. is twofold. Number one, the man's chief end is to glorify God. And number two, to enjoy Him forever. Our purpose, the reason we are here, the reason God made you, is to glorify and to enjoy Him. Or, put another way, man's chief end or purpose is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. God wants us to enjoy His presence because God enjoys your presence. God loves spending time with us. You know, there's some people around us, and I'm sure you've got either friends like this or family members like this, who, when it, they're just great to spend time around. They're great to be with. They're just great people. They make you feel better about yourself. They're just positive. They're not, they don't get down really easily. They're just great to spend. They're uplifting, and you enjoy spending time with them. Every opportunity you take to spend time with them. Well, you know what? Here's some news for you. That's the way God feels about you. 
God loves spending time with you because he made you. He created you and he created you for intimacy. God's greatest delight is spending time with you. And it's amazing how when we come to God and we spend time with him, we feel better about ourselves. He pours his love into us. It's a wonderful relationship of connection where we grow from glory to glory, the Bible says, more and more into his image. Romans 11 verse 36 says this, For of him and through him and to him are all things made, to whom be glory forever. Amen. For of him, so in other words, of God, we're made of the stuff of God. He created us and he breathed life into us. And through him, through Jesus Christ, no one comes to the Father except through me, through him and to him. In other words, our very existence is for him. God created us for love relationship, for intimacy. Isn't that a beautiful thought? And this, folks, is the essence of worship. We were created for intimacy with God. And intimacy with God and a joyous, harmonious relationship with Him is in fact the highest act or the highest response of worship. And God desires for us to enjoy Him forever. Turn in your Bibles with me. We're going to read this together. Psalm chapter 16. So if you have a device, get your device out. If you have one of these that make you look very spiritual, use that one then. You have to have a big black one. That makes you look very Christian. Psalm 16, verse 5 to 11. I'm going to be reading from the New King James. This is a beautiful psalm, and it speaks about the state of those who have intimacy and have a real relationship with God and enjoy His presence. It says this from verse 5. O Lord, You are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lions have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night sessions. I have set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh will also rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. Isn't that beautiful? In your presence, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. Folks, I've got kids. Most of us are in a relationship there's very few of us around who are not married here you know when you have the attention of somebody willingly and when you have the attention of somebody begrudgingly there you know when 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 someone you're speaking to somebody and they're looking at the screen and they're going "Uh uh-huh yeah uh uh-huh and you could be saying anything in the world and they're not hearing a word you're saying because they're not really paying attention i think very often our relationship with god looks a bit like that We're distracted by the things of this world. We're distracted by what goes on around us. But the greatest essence of worship we can have is to come and give God our undivided attention. 
whatever that may look like. Sometimes that is through acts of song, works of service, whatever it may be. And we're going to get into a little bit of, of that just now. But the whole idea behind worship is intimacy. We were created for intimacy. And when we position ourselves in that place and exist and live life from that place, we will naturally live lives of worship. Psalm 144, 15. Happy are the people who are in such a state. Uh, happy are people whose God is the Lord. That's, that's wonderful. What a joyous state to be in. Again, one more. Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. That word rejoice is a very expressive word. If you get down back to the root of it, it's not just being happy or saying nice things. It is clamorous foolishness, as somebody recently defined it. We're jumping around with clamorous exuberation. Just absolute rejoicing in the presence of the Lord. You see, folks, worship belongs to God. It's a manifestation of who He is. That's why many people define worship as worth-ship. He is worthy of it. The Bible says blessing and honor and glory and power belong to God. This verses in the Bible that says, If we do not praise, the rocks will cry out. Other parts of Scripture say, All creation shouts your praise. All creation is involved in the song of worship. Giving glory to God, giving glory to Jesus 24-7. God is worthy of our worship. Not merely for what He has done, but for who He is. Let me ask you a question. If God, had not done, if God does not do another thing for you, would He still be worthy of your worship? Yes, He would. Because He is God. Glory and honor and power and majesty and might belong to Him. He is God. In fact, if God hadn't done a single thing for you and I, He would still be worthy of worship. Because He is God. Bible says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why will, how will that happen? By force where God will force every knee to bow and they will submit to... It's just not like that. In the day when we see God, when we have a revelation of who He really is, that natural expression of worship that I'm talking about will take over in our hearts and every knee will bow. It will be the natural expression of a revelation of who God is. In talking about worship, Jesus had the following to say. John chapter 4, verses 23 to 24. He said, But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The first point I want to make from this point of scripture is this. Jesus says, God is seeking those who will worship Him. He, he's looking for them. That's an incredible thought. God is not sitting passively, idly by, waiting for something to rise up from Him and get His attention. God is actively looking for those who are living a life of worship, who are doing what they were created to do. Um, there's another verse, and I think it's the book of Deuteronomy, excuse me, where the Word of God says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth 
to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. God is looking for worshippers. He is looking. Why? Because worship unlocks intimacy. Worship is an act of relationship. And God is looking for that. He is hungry for that. He is desirous of that. So Jesus said, God is seeking such to worship him. But then he also says this. He says, when true worshippers will worship the Father. Now if Jesus is talking about true worshippers, what does that imply? It implies that they can be false worshippers. False worshippers. What is a false worshipper? Well, a false worshipper is somebody who may think he's worshipping God, but he's worshipping himself. He's worshipping not according to spirit and in truth. Let me give you some examples. Do you know that there's such a thing called ignorant worship? You worship what you don't know. Paul writes in one of his epistles, I can't remember where it is, he says, you worship what you do not know or who you do not know. We worship who we know. We know who we are worshipping. We're not worshipping some mystic thing up there. We're not worshipping 101 deities. We're worshipping the one true God. There's no ambiguity about that. There's also different kinds of worship where people worship with their intellect. So let me give you an example of what that looks like. People try to serve God. They try to understand God. They even try to praise God by what they understand about Him intellectually. Which has, a, it's, which has a ceiling. Your mind is therefore the ceiling to the level to which you, you worship God. You read the Word of God. You understand it intellectually as best you can. You try and piece it together. But Jesus says here, I, God is looking for those who will worship Him in spirit. With a spirit connection. A heart-to-heart connection. Those who are not deceived, who are not worshipping a God of their own making... Very often we worship a God of our own making. We take out of the Bible the scriptures we like about God. We ignore or, or, or leave alone the scriptures we don't like or don't maybe agree with. God is looking for those who will worship Him according to spirit and in truth. You see folks, as in the same way that our eyes perceive light and our ears perceive sound, so our spirit man is designed to perceive God. Spirit to spirit communication. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 talks all about that. It says, we do not have the mind of God. Who has the mind of God? Who has the mind that knows the mind of a man, but the spirit of the man? So likewise, who knows the mind of God, but the spirit of God? And we have received the spirit of God so that we can have communication and communion and fellowship with Him. To worship in spirit, so we've explained what that means. Heart to heart relational worship that comes through relationship with Jesus Christ. But then he also says, truth. To worship in truth means two things. Number one, as I've said, it means we worship the truth of who Jesus is. We don't worship some idea of who he is or what we want him to be like. We worship him for who he is. But to worship in truth also means this, that I worship God, I live my life in such a way before him that nothing is hidden. Now you could say, Michael, of course nothing is hidden from God. He's God. But yet so much of our worship and our expression and even our prayer time, how much of that are we being real with God, honest with God, acknowledging our weaknesses, calling on Him to help us in, in, in our shortcomings and our failures? The, without that connection, without that truth, without being real with God, not pompous prayers or singing songs where our hearts are just not engaged, Honesty before God is 
is is the imperative for true and real worship. A deception that's prevalent in the church today, folks, is that we can go to a meeting, we can sing songs, we can praise God and we can worship Him and leave feeling satisfied in ourselves that we've done or accomplished something, but unchanged on the inside. That's a fallacy. We cannot meet God and remain unchanged. We can sing songs to God, we can listen to preaching, we can read our Bible and remain unchanged. Why? Because it hasn't penetrated our heart. But this, And you see, that comes back to the essence of it all. When hearts connect, change happens. Communication, impartation takes place. We, we are able to truly express to God honest and sincere worship and receive back from Him His love. When we truly worship, we are touched and we are changed. When we are truly making connection with God, we are touched. And we, you know this, folks. You've read your Bible some days and it's been dry and cold. Why? Because the Word of God is dry and cold? No, because my heart is. But there's other times when you read the Bible and it comes alive. God speaks to you. That's worship. That's making a connection, a relational connection, where God is able to work within us. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says this, Without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. True and genuine worship is always going to be founded upon a revelation of who God is. Two examples I want to give you. And I'm going for the sake of time. Uh, for the sake of time, let me just see where we are. Yes, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read them, but I'll articulate the stories to you. The one is found in Isaiah chapter 6, uh, verses 1 to 8. Make reference. I encourage you to go and read this in your own time. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 to 8. And in this portion of Scripture, we see, this, we have the story of Isaiah where God gave him a vision. He was caught up in the Spirit. And he was transported into the throne room of God. And he said, There I saw... God and his robe filled the temple and there were angels around him and it, and they were singing holy 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 is the Lord God almighty the whole earth is filled with his glory and the pillars of the temple were shaking at the sound so mighty was the sound so he has a revelation he has a vision a picture of who and of, of how great and incredible how worthy God is and you know what happens he says he falls to his face. He falls on his knees, prostrate before God. And he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. So he comes into a place where he realizes his own unworthiness to be in that space, to be in that place. The next thing that happens is an angel goes and he takes a pair of tongs and he takes a coal from the fire and he comes and he touches Isaiah's lips with the coal and he cleanses his lips. That's a picture of what Jesus did for us, folks. We were unworthy to come into the presence of God. Jesus is the coal that came down and cleansed us, not with coal, but with his blood so that we could stand in the presence of God, so that we could speak and have communication with God. And so we have this picture of Isaiah now being cleansed, still bowing before the presence of God, and he hears a voice saying, Whom shall I send? Whom will go for us? 
And Isaiah has a response. And he says, here I am, Lord, send me. Folks, that response epitomizes worship. There he was in a place God had put him in for him to realize and to be ushered into what he was created for. Isaiah is one of the greatest prophets who ever lived. One of the most quoted prophets. Yet none of that would have happened without, this, without him living out his purpose. You think about the prophecies that he gave about Jesus. That he would, that, that, and all the, I don't want to go into all of that. The point I'm wanting to make is this. Isaiah found his purpose and his destiny. And he lived that out as an act of worship before God. Another encounter that we have is, is Saul. Book of, the book of Acts. Uh, the Apostle Paul. He used to be called Saul. Acts chapter 9, verse 1 to 9, and then again from verse 17 to 22. It, it recounts a story of when he was on his way to, to go and persecute the Christians. And Jesus met him on the way and gave him a vision of a light. And said to him, Paul... Or he said to him, Saul at that stage, Why do you kick against the goads? Isn't it hard for you to kick against the goads? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Christ. I am the one you're persecuting. I love the way Jesus does that. He doesn't, he doesn't sort of come down and go, Saul, you've been a bad boy. You need to repent. He doesn't do that. He just kind of stands there and goes, Yeah, Saul, it's, right now life's pretty tough for you, isn't it? It's really hard to be doing what you're doing. It's not easy, is it? And Paul kind of doesn't quite know what's going on. And Jesus calls him into something and he sends Ananias and he lays hands on him. And we know that Saul's life is transformed. Absolutely transformed through an encounter. Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. How much did that man give back to you and I and to the body of Christ today? Two-thirds of the New Testament. Would you say that's an act of worship? Now, did God say to him, I want you to write the New Testament. I want you to write this letter. I don't know that he did. We know that and believe that the Spirit, that the, the, the scriptures are all inspired by the Spirit of God. But what we see here is that through an intimate relationship with God, Paul lived a life that left a legacy. Paul lived a life that he was created to do. I remember when Ananias says to God, and God comes to Ananias and says, go and lay hands on Saul. And he's, Ananias says, have you got the right guy here? Are you sure about this? Don't you know who, you, who this is? And God says, yes, I know. I will show him what things he must suffer for, for my name's sake. In other words, there was a road that God had prepared for him to walk down. For God's glory. And you and I today are encouraged and ministered to so often by the words that Paul captured as a testimony of his life lived in worship. This is the essence of it, folks. Worship is not just a song sung or a task performed. It's finding out why God created us and living it out with joy and intimacy with Him. Many of you have heard the story of Eric Little. Eric Little became famous because he was a British runner. And he, was, he ran really fast. In fact, he was known for running in a very strange way. He ran with flailing arms. Where most people would run with arms like this, he ran with his arms like this. And he was known for that. He was hilarious to watch running. And part of the story is that um, 
on the day that he, he he went to the Olympics to run for Great Britain, and his event, I think it was the 400 meters. I may have the details a little bit wrong, so forgive me if I do, but 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 bear with me. He was going to run the 400 meters, but it was scheduled to to take place on a Sunday, and he said, "I'm sorry, I can't run this race because that is my Sabbath." The King of England came and spoke to him and said, "Please, you're doing this for England," and he said. I cannot bow to you. I bow to one higher than you. And what he ended up doing is he ended up running another event that he never trained for. He ran the 800 meters on the Monday or Tuesday, whenever it was, and he won. And he brought glory to God. And that was it. He went to one Olympics and then he lived his rest out, lived out the rest of his life as a missionary. I think he died in China at the age of 40-something. A missionary. Died on the mission field. And he considered his life to be lived out for God. An offering of worship. Folks, if worship is something that we offer up to God, and our lives are meant to be worship, does that give you just an idea or an inkling of what it is that God is really looking for from us? That worship is not just a work performed, but it is a heart yielded to Him to have His way in it. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20 says, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You were bought with a price. What does that mean? That means you're valuable. That means God places high value on you, on who you, not for what, not what you can do for Him, on you, on your heart. But if you've been bought, if you've been purchased, you know, if I go into the store and I buy a bottle of water and I come out with my bottle of water, that bottle of water no longer belongs to the store. It belongs to me. It's there to bless and minister to me. And that's how you and I are, folks, before God. We were bought with a price. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. We belong to Jesus. Brokenness and submission are the fruit of a heart of worship. The heart of worship is one that allows God to glorify Himself through us. Let me give you just a pattern or a picture here. Jesus came when He lived on earth and He said something that was really profound and I think we often skip over it. He said this, The Son can do nothing of Himself, only that which He sees the Father doing. He said of Himself, I can do nothing Nothing of eternal glory, nothing that glorifies God, nothing of significance, unless I see the Father for doing it. Everything Jesus did came out of that place of intimacy with God, where he was hearing God's voice and being led by, by the Spirit of God. His life was an overflow of that relationship. Later on, towards the end of his life, just before Garden of Gethsemane, we read in Psalm, I beg your pardon, in John chapter 15, he's teaching his disciples. And they're walking in the garden and he comes to his vine and he comes to a vine and he says, My father's the vine dresser, I am the vine, you are the branches. And he goes on to say, Without me you can do nothing. He's not being arrogant. He's reflecting the same truth, the same reality that he has lived out for all these for, for his entire life. That without the Father, without intimacy with Jesus, we can do nothing of eternal significance or of any kind of value. The only way that we can worship God in an acceptable way or live lives that are glorifying to Him is by allowing Him to glorify Himself through us. 
That's huge, folks. The Bible says that our goodness, the, our righteousnesses, the best that we have to bring are as filthy rags before God. Our best is never going to be good enough. Never. But that's why Jesus came. He came to take care of that. He came to give us a new life. He came to put His Spirit within us. The Bible says He came to give us rivers of living water that overflow. And that overflowing produces a natural expression of worship in servanthood, in submission, in love, in care, in song, in giving of ourselves over to Him, from which can come great blessing, great glory and great honor to God. This is a willing surrender, a willing yielding. It's born of a response to God's unconditional love, of His forgiveness of his, and of His acceptance for who we are. See folks, the only areas of our lives in which God can receive glory are those areas that are submitted completely to His Lordship. This perpetual journey of surrender is the essence of worship. Remember I said to you, I want you to think of worship slightly differently. This is the essence of worship. You see, no matter how sincere we try to be, no matter how much worship we muster, the harder we try, the more in the flesh we are. Worship is an act of yielding and surrender to God. That's why worship is expressed so often by kneeling down with our face to the floor. Surrender. It's willing and reverent submission that leads to joyous release and empowerment from God. You see, folks, God is not after our works. He's not after our gifting. He doesn't want it. Exodus 34, 14. Uh, sorry, no, not Exodus 34. Sorry, let's, let's first go. Psalm 51. Let me read the scripture to you. Psalm 51. Verse 16 and 17. God says this. For you, or, or David writes and he says, for you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in a burnt offering. Let me paraphrase. You're not impressed when I come to church. You're not impressed and blessed when I attend the prayer meeting, or when I sing a song, or when I've kept my quiet time every time this week. You're not impressed in the outward act. But the sacrifices of God are a broken or repentant spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. You see, it's not in the self-effort. It's in the expression of that which is truly going on within. See, the essence of worship becomes obedience. You can write, if you're taking notes, worship equals obedience. Pastor Andreas once said something that stuck with me. He said, you cannot make up through sacrifice what you lose through disobedience. You cannot make up through sacrifice what you lose through disobedience. Samuel, 1 Samuel 15.22 So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. You see folks, worship comes from an act of obedience and a response to God's love. If worship is something we need to muster, we're doing it in the flesh. It's unacceptable to God. Now that doesn't mean that it doesn't take effort. Remember I said worship needs to be deliberate. So I'm not, I'm not saying that we do not engage it with our whole heart. 
But worship needs to be a response to God. That's why if, when, if you look at the prayer Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he said, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. In other words, putting God in the place where God belongs. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done in my heart. Your will be done in my life. For only then can I worship you effectively. Only then can I truly enjoy you when your will is done. Jesus said, John 14, 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. Simple. He said that and he used that probably very differently to the way we usually do. If you love me, you'll go make me a cup of coffee. Jesus didn't use it as a crowbar to crank us and to get us to do something that he wanted us to do. You would say, if you love me, you'll do what I say. It's not a manipulation tool here. It's just a truth. It's just a fact, as simple as can be. If you love me, the expression is that you'll obey my commandments. Here's the truth, folks. If you do not obey my commandments, you prove something else. That you do not love me, that you love yourself. That you love your own... You're still in love with your own will. You're still in love with your own ways. You haven't embraced my ways and my heart yet. Therefore, everything that you do will be an expression not of worship to me, but of worship to yourself. So the essence or the evidence of worship is obedience. 1 John 5 verse 3, the apostle writes, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. Not only that, but he goes on to say, And His commandments are not burdensome. So in other words, it's not like I'm doing the will of God or I'm trying to worship Him and, oh, I've got to do this again. Oh, I need to. Oh, I'm, uh. That's not worship. It's not coming from a willing heart of surrender and delight in who God is and what He has done for us. Worship, you, I know when I'm truly engaged in worshiping God, when I can be scrubbing a toilet with joy in my heart knowing that I'm being, doing, bringing pleasure to the heart of God. When I'm serving my family or my wife or my church or my workplace with it's not a burden it's not a schlep it's not a begrudging obligation that i have to do i find joy in it why because my heart is being motivated to works of service of sacrifice with joy did jesus complain and moan when he was washing the disciples feet no he didn't he did it with a heart of sincere love for them that was worship it wasn't worshiping them he was worshipping his father. Folks, while Jesus lived, he never led a special praise and worship service to glorify God. He had 5,000 people together, 15,000 if you like, with women and children. He could have had a pretty raucous praise and worship session then. I mean, they'd just eaten a massive meal. He could have really laid it on thick, but he never did. How did Jesus worship? He simply lived a life in obedience to God. Please turn in your Bibles to John 17 verse 4 because I want you to see this. Remember I said, we looked at the Westminster Confession of Faith. The chief end of man, the purpose of mankind, all man including Jesus, he was born as a man, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Listen to what John 17 verse 4 says. This is Jesus speaking. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work you have given me to do. How did Jesus glorify God? 
by simply living the life that God sent him to live. Folks, that is going to look different for you than it is for me. Every one of us has unique gifts, unique callings. We're all placed in unique environments. But the way we bring glory to God is by living out the life that He has created and called us to live. In His presence, inspired by His Spirit, not begrudgingly, but in joy, out of intimacy with Him. Folks, worship is an attitude of the heart towards God that must be expressed. It's natural. It, it, I don't want to say it drives us, but it draws us to obedience. Worship is a lifestyle. It's born of a heart motivation that is purposefully focused on bringing glory and honor to God through willing surrender. That is the essence of worship. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do you see how that encompasses every part of life? It's not just a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening on the webinar. It's not just a song I sing or a verse that I read or a poem that I write. Everything that I do with the right heart attitude in obedience and submission to God becomes an act of worship. I, can, can you worship God while you're eating your supper? Yes. Can you worship God when you're driving your car? Yes. Why? How do I do that? How do I worship God all day long? I can't sing all day long. No, you can't. But your heart attitude towards God in obedience to Him can carry and be seen through everything. A heart of love and works done with a heart of love are evident for all around you to see. You can tell when somebody's carrying an attitude like that. You can tell when someone's carrying a heart of love towards God and they're living life as an expression of enjoyment of Him. Folks, I want to say this to you. The only way you're ever going to enjoy God is by living out of the fullness of intimacy with Him. It's about hearing His voice and acting on it, no matter how silly it may seem. It's by sharing and giving random acts of kindness and sharing love with people who you otherwise would ignore or just walk past. And you will begin to see how the love and the life of God begins to minister through you and bless you and bless others. Our joy in the Lord is complete when we begin to live out our worship to Him. When we begin to express it in songs, in acts of obedience, our joy becomes complete. Not just God's, but ours. And so I want to encourage you, wherever you may be, to think slightly differently about worship. To consider that tomorrow morning when you wake up and you go to the office, that, that you are there for a reason. You're called there for a purpose. And as your heart remains open to the Lord and saying, Lord, what do you want me to do today? Over and above my job, how can I minister your life? How can I obey you? How can I see the people around me? Begin to pray for them. Begin to pray for opportunities to show God's love. And see what God will do through you. Look what He did through Paul, through Isaiah, through Jesus Christ, through through every just about person in the Bible. Look what he's done through Pastor Andreas. We're all here today. Because a man said, God, I want to live my life for you as a life of worship. 
We don't glorify men here, folks. That's not what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to do is draw examples to inspire us. So let me ask you, can you say that you are living the life that God has created you to live, doing what God has called and created you to do? That is the most important thing that you can find out because that will mean when you start aligning your life with that, your life becomes an expression of worship to God in obedience to His Spirit's leading and guidance. That is the essence of worship. With that in our hearts, we can sing songs of faith and joy and minister to God and be ministered to. We can read the Bible and new life pops out. We can engage in relationships and feel just life and love flowing through them. Worship. Worshipping God through surrendering to Him and allowing Him to glorify Himself through us. Amen? Thank you for listening to this message. For additional resources or more information about this ministry, come and visit us at alphaomegaint.org.za.